Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 150 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And I thought I'd start today with a poem. I've been getting into the writing of Kay Boyle. More on her later. This is a poem called Monody to the Sound of Zithers. I have wanted other things more than lovers. I have desired peace, intimately to know the secret curves of deep-bosomed contentment, to learn by heart things beautiful and slow. Cities at night and cloudful skies I've wanted, and open cottage doors, old colors and smells apart. All dim things, layers of river mists on river, to capture beauty's hands and lay them on my heart. I have wanted clean rain to kiss my eyelids, sea spray and silver foam to kiss my mouth. I have wanted strong winds to flay me with passion and to soothe me, tired winds from the south. These things have I wanted more than lovers, jewels in my hands and dew on morning grass, familiar things while lovers have been strangers, friended thus, I have let nothing pass. Oh, my. I love, love that. that. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh. And the whole monody to the sound of zithers, I was like, I don't even understand that mm-hmm. anything. And so a monody is an ode sung by a single person in a Greek tragedy. Oh. I looked up the usage of that word because I thought, well, maybe it was really popular when she wrote this poem. It was very popular word in the early 1800s, but it had dropped significantly by the 1830s. And she was a early 20th century writer, early to mid 20th century, I should say. And then a zither, have you ever heard of that? No. I hadn't either. It's a folk instrument from Austria-ish area. So it's a sound box. Think of a violin, but flatter and bigger. It has 30 to 40 strings, and it's played on the person's lap. I thought that was really an interesting title. Yeah. Like a requiem or an ode to the sound of that. Mm -hmm. So you wonder, like, did she have this sensual feeling about things in nature while she was hearing a zither playing in the background? Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Or the musicality of nature. Yeah. And the feelings of it. Mm -hmm. You know, like one of my favorite lines is that one, I have wanted strong winds to flay me with passion. Mm hmm. I mean, that makes you feel a little hot and bothered. Totally. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. So we have a couple things before we get started in our regular segments. One is we just wanted to let people know that we got some feedback on episode 149 that people were having trouble right around the 17 minute mark that it just stopped. And this was on Apple Podcasts specifically. So if that happens, the solution was just to delete it and download it again. Yeah. Yeah. Don't try to just re-download it, delete it, and then re-download. And then that seems to have worked. Some people had to do it multiple times. Emily and I both use different podcast apps and we didn't have that problem. But if there's ever an issue for you, please reach out and let us know. Yeah. Email us straight away. We really do want to know. So thank you to the people who did. Yeah, absolutely. We'll help you troubleshoot. Yeah. And then exciting news, we've reached another 10 episodes, which means we have a giveaway. We have four wonderful books, at least. Yes. (laughs) And reminder that to be entered into the giveaways, all you need to do is subscribe to our newsletter. So if you're already subscribed, you're entered. If you're not subscribed, you have time still. Yeah, just go to bookcougars.com and there's a subscribe button 
Just put your email in there. And we only send one email a month. Yeah, it's our monthly newsletter with Mm -hmm. fun information about the Cougs. Yeah, so this giveaway, do we want to say the titles? Yeah, we have four books. One is Honor by Thridi Umrigar, Servant Mage by Kate Elliott, The Great Gadsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, and that's the one with the foreword by Min Jin Lee, and then The Chosen and the Beautiful by Ni Vo. Yeah, and so The Chosen and the Beautiful, um, I had talked about that on a past episode. That was a retelling of the story of The Great Gatsby from one of the other characters' point of view. And that's why we thought it'd be fun to give away a copy of The Great Gatsby as well. Yeah, so exciting. And we will choose the winner on, should we say, March 8th? Sounds good. All right. So if you're not a newsletter subscriber, you have until March 8th to become one. And then in other news, we had some feedback about a book that we talked about on the last episode, Harold and the Purple Crayon. If people remember, this is a very well-known children's book. Chris and I had a a heated discussion about (laughs) our feelings about it. Full disclosure, we both thought it had no words. Oh my gosh, that was so funny. I mean, most of that got edited out of the episode, but... When I was listening to the episode then, I thought, I should double check the book. Like, And it has words. But when we were talking about it, all I remembered were the pictures, the images, because they are so bold. Right. And we both kind of said we didn't love the book, that I said it kind of stressed me out to read it to my kids. But a dear friend of mine, Lynn, who is a preschool teacher extraordinaire, took the time to text me and she said, wanted to say that lots of kids like Harold and his crayon, especially little kids don't like tensions, problems to solve and storylines. I'm talking three-year-olds here, she says. So important to remember that we're also reading these as adults when we're talking about them now. And I was reading it as adult, obviously to my children, but I was also like, you know, a stressed out, tired mom that had my feelings about what I wanted story time to be, I guess. Mm, yeah. You know, it's really interesting, too, because I I think about times I've seen, say, movies with a kid, you know, and I'll be sitting there crying as, you know, King Kong is getting shot at or whatever. And I'll look at my little friend and they're just sitting there chowing on popcorn, like, you know, having a grand old time. So I know we do have very different understanding of what's going on. Right. And I also really appreciated her reminding us that reading doesn't always have to be about a big learning experience. It can be pleasurable and relaxing and that's okay too. Yeah. Doesn't have to be stress induced. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, would you be buying a cop- copy of Harold and the Purple Crayon anytime soon for a little person in your life? Maybe. I want to read it again. Okay. I was having that conversation, having not seen it for quite some time. <laughs> I mean, the imagery, as you mentioned, is very memorable. Right. But the storyline is not to me. Well, maybe we could meet at the Guilford Library in the children's section and read it together. I think that's a brilliant idea, Chris. <laughs> So what are you currently reading? Well, I am making a little bit of progress on War and Peace by Tolstoy. I am, well, I have broken uh, 100 pages. I'm on page 120 at this point. So I'm into part two, which is the war is starting and ramping up. Okay. It makes me curious, you know, if you keep reading this into summer, what what your big book will be this summer. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm really, you know, I hope that um, during spring break, which is going to be in March, that I'll make really good progress on it. 
I have this programming class, a Python class that it's kicking my ass. Like it is so hard for me. My brain just doesn't think that way. So that's taking a lot of mental energy. And I truly want to take spring break off and just read. So we'll see. The first part of War and Peace is all about kind of introducing you to a lot of the characters. And it's a lot of social family background type stuff. And then part two, as I said, getting into the war. So more to come on that. And I just started reading This Time Tomorrow by Emma Straub. This book comes out on May 17th. Emma Straub is the owner of Books Are Magic in Brooklyn. And she's also a very well-known author at this point. All of these books are available now. People love her books. I'm just going to read them quickly. All Adults Here, Modern Lovers, The Vacationers, Laura Lamont's Life in Pictures, Other People We Married. And this book, I literally just started reading it last night, but it is not the book that she expected to write during the pandemic. She was in the middle of writing another book. She had to abandon it. She has two young kids. She was really stressed out. And then her father ended up in the hospital, not with COVID, but with a heart-related ailment. And she started spending time with him in the hospital and he is a writer, Peter Straub. I don't know his writing. but um, oh, Was he the horror writer? Oh, maybe so. Get maybe out. So. I never made that connection before. Yeah. Like one of his most well-known books is Ghost Story. And then he also co-wrote another book with Stephen King. So definitely check out his backlist. He has some straight up novels and then some horror-ish stuff. Wow. So they write very different novels, it sounds like. But so what she ended up writing is a father-daughter novel. And it's a time travel novel. And it's supposed to be very humorous. And she's in her 40s. So it's also very much takes place in the period of time she goes back into to 1996 as a 16 year old and it's her 16th birthday i believe and she's she's very funny i get her newsletter i highly recommend getting her newsletter her writing is brilliant and she's hilarious so again this is called this time tomorrow by emma straub and this comes out on may 17th so what have you just read Oh, my gracious. I have been on a reading tear, as we like to say here at Book Cougars headquarters. And one of the books I read is The Wise Women by Gina Sorrell. This comes out on April 5th. This is really a play on the name wise, because the story revolves around two women and their mother. So a mother and two daughters, in other words. And the mother is an advice columnist. So that's why it's wise advice. Get it? The beginning of each chapter has a piece of the mother's advice. She was very old-fashioned about marriage and love and things like that. So slightly what we would think dated at this time. Her daughters, one of them kind of toes the party line. Her name's Clementine. She gets married very young, has a son, and then starts to have marital problems. The older daughter, Barb, is a lesbian. She's going through perimenopause. She's in a relationship with a woman 10 years her junior. She's very responsible, an architect. And she was the older sister who had to take care of her younger sister quite a bit. And as they're now both adults, they're dealing with their family of origin stuff, as we are wont to do. 
It's very of the moment. It's in New York City. If you like New York, it's all Brooklyn neighborhoods. You'll enjoy that aspect of the book. And it's poignant. There are a lot of things going on with all of them. They see their mother for who she is. And also how we can have different relationships with our parent, depending on our birth order and our personality and the decisions we make in life. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. There's a, a little bit of a thread of Instagram influencers, you know, which I've read some other books with that now that can seem somewhat unbelievable, but I feel like the way that Gina Sorrell wrote it, it was believable. There's also a thread about gentrification, which I think particularly if you live in the Brooklyn area is really true and problematic for people who try to live there and make a living and things like that. Again, the book is called The Wise Women. It comes out on April 5th, 2022. Author is Gina Sorrell. Nice. Sounds good. I read a novel that has been sitting on my shelf since January 30th, 1921. I have a note inside that I bought it at the Barnes & Noble in hold, West Hartford. Hold really? 1921? Did I say 1921? <laughs> okay. 2021. We know you read a lot of books that were in the 1900s. <laughs> I'm sorry. That I interrupted so funny. you. No, that's great. In the year of our Lord, 1894, I became an outlaw. That's on the inside flap. This is about a 17-year-old Ada who is living in an alternative United States of the 1890s. So sometime... A few generations before, a flu wiped out most of the United States population. Nine out of 10 people died. So it's really no longer the United States. This is set in Texas, and it is a queer feminist reimagining of Billy the Kid and Doc Holliday. Oh, how cool. So you have this character, the kid, who is the leader of a band of outlaws, and they are all queer people. Ada, who is a young woman, her mom is a midwife, so helping to bring new babies into the world, which is the number one priority of people alive at this time to repopulate. So one of the side effects of the flu wiping out everybody was that it did impact fertility. And women now, if they come from a family with plentiful siblings, they will marry well and probably reproduce without much problem. Women who don't reproduce within a year are sometimes kicked out of their husband's home and the husband will find a new wife. It is cut and dry. Love is there, but it's very much on a slippery slope. It's purposeful, right? Yes. Like this is what we're here to do. Yes, it's conditional. conditional. Love is conditional. And there's witchcraft. So a woman who does not reproduce who is friends with some woman who might have, say, a miscarriage, could be accused of witchcraft Mm. and making her friend miscarry. So you have this threat of witchcraft, of women being persecuted for not reproducing. People are desperate for answers, and there's not a lot of answers. People don't know why couples are not able to reproduce. So Ada, who is married, I don't want to give too many spoilers, She eventually joins this band of outlaws after being in a convent. Mm. So if that doesn't (laughs) pique your curiosity, this is not the book for you. But if you're in the mood for an alternative Western set in the 1890s, this is the book for you. I really enjoyed it. It was a big page turner for me. 
And let's see, I didn't say the author, Anna North. And it was a Reese book club pick. The cover is so cool. It It has like this, you know, image of a cowboy-like person with no face, though. Well, Mark, can I say, I'm just going to quit talking about it and say, if this sounded the least bit interesting to you, definitely check it out. Again, that's Outlawed by Anna North. I remember it was really popular when it came out. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I bought it that one day when I was just browsing around and it's been sitting on my shelf and I was in the mood for a Western and I am going to be reading some Larry McMurtry later this year. And I've been hankering to reread True Grit, Mm. but I'm kind of resisting that a little bit. So this is the one I picked up. I have to just read this one quote. One character says to another, they're endangered. If they take you, keep your head up. Don't beg for your life. Don't confess to any sin. If you die without shame, the shame is all theirs. Mm. I like that quote. Mm -hmm. So folks, if you Google this book and you see the cover, it's definitely going to trigger a memory of having seen it in the past. Yes. I listened to Unleashing the Soul of Money, Finding Sufficiency, Freedom, and Purpose Through Your Relationship with Money by Lynn Twist. I listened to this as an audiobook, and this published in 2006. And I have to say, I only found it as an audiobook, so I don't know that it exists otherwise. Lynn Twist also wrote a book that published in 2003 called The Soul of Money, Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Life. And this book that I listened to is kind of like a workbook. So it was only two and a half hours. It has two guided meditations in it. She stresses the idea of having a journal or a notebook sitting next to you as you're listening to it to take notes and jot down things that come up for you. Lynn Twist was a very successful fundraiser and worked for a nonprofit called The Hunger Project. And she's a storyteller. So as she's talking about these ideas, she also tells some stories about her fundraising that I found really interesting. It also reminded me that one of the things you learn about philanthropy, particularly when I was studying it, is that people who are the most generous tend to be the people with the least amount of money, which is really interesting. And maybe most generous isn't the right way to say it, but maybe have less stress about money and giving their money away. They have a different relationship with it. Mm -hmm. And she talks a lot about that. And the three toxic myths of money that she speaks of is, one, that there's not enough, that we live in scarcity. Two, that more is better, which means that we have kind of a deficit culture. We never have enough. We're always striving for more. And three, that's just the way it is. We accept that we have scarcity and that more is better. She really speaks to that, and she uses stories to talk about it. And she also stresses that the size of your paycheck doesn't correlate to fulfillment, that it's really important to align your values to how you feel about your money. I totally 100% agree with that. And I found that the exercises and the guided meditations she did were really good. I also live in a world where I recognize that money is a tool, So I struggle with it that way, too, when I read things like that. It's like, yes, I agree with everything you're saying, but we also need money to accomplish things in life, you know? Yeah. But I do think having a healthy relationship with money is really important. And I've been thinking about the idea of abundance, and someone suggested to me that maybe I should think more about the idea of sufficiency and recommended that I listen to this book. And I really did appreciate that idea of understanding sufficiency 
in the idea of scarcity. Yeah, like, so you have a sufficient amount of money to live the way you want to live? Is that what you mean? Yeah, sufficient in that what is enough and looking at your life and trying to determine what is enough. Mm -hmm. Because especially in this country, I feel like we spend so much time planning for the future and not necessarily living for now. Mm -hmm. And also trying to protect our wealth instead of sharing it, which is why we have a lot of people who don't live with sufficiency. And that's the background of her work, particularly with the Hunger Project. She really shares her ideas around that. She says things in a very succinct way. She has a lovely voice. So listening to it was great and the meditations. So if you have any interest in looking at your relationship with money and taking some time to be thoughtful about it, I highly recommend it. Again, it's called Unleashing the Soul of Money, Finding Sufficiency, Freedom, and Purpose Through Your Relationship with Money by Lynn Twist. Nice. Yeah, I think it's so important to understand money in your own life and your attitudes towards money for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I did read the collected poems of Kay Boyle. I don't have the book with me. I don't know what happened to it. It's a library book. So I hope I find it. If not, <laughs> I will be <laughs> paying a fine. You know, that poem that I read of hers, Monody to the Sound of Zithers, is actually not in the collected edition that I read, which supposedly was the collected edition of her poems. So that was really strange to me. I found this online, Monody to the Sound of Zithers, and it was published in Poetry Magazine in the 1920s. I think it's probably my favorite poem of hers in that collection. She has some short poems, and then she has some longer prosy type poems, which are generally not my cup of tea. I've come to the conclusion probably why I love Emily Dickinson so much. Like I love shorter poems. <laughs> yeah. A poem that is like a page with lines, you know, mm-hmm. marching in nice little order is my preferred form of poetry, I have to say. So I probably skimmed some of those longer poems more than actually tried to read them and grasp them. Yeah. Yeah. But she came to my radar recently because I cleaned off this old bookshelf that I have with some boxes. And inside the box, I found these knowledge cards of women writers that Laura had given me years ago. They're well used. I read through all of them. I have them propped up places and stuff here and there at different times. And I thought, well, I'm going to just look. And I pulled out the first card and it was Kay Boyle. Now, The first time I remember hearing about Kay Boyle was Anne Boyd Rue talking about Kay Boyle when we interviewed her during our Summer of Little Women. We asked her what she was working on next, and she said she'd been reading a lot about Kay Boyle and that we should totally check her out. So Kay Boyle's dates are 1902 to 1992, and Anne had explained that she was curious about women writers who were expatriates post-World War I in France. That's when Hemingway and Fitzgerald and so many of those famous male writers that we know were there. Gertrude Stein, too, is one of the women mentioned. But Anne was like, there has to be more women. So that's when she stumbled upon Kay Boyle. I thought that was really interesting that I had read this card years ago. And when Anne mentioned Kay Boyle, I was like, oh, I never heard of her. But obviously I had. So kind of a neat coincidence, I thought. And also, Kay Boyle's birthday was coming up just in a matter of days. So I thought, okay, this is a sign that I need to get reading some of her work. In addition to that collected poetry, I also ordered one of her novels. 
This one is Avalanche. I have a wonderful copy in my hand that has a dusk jacket on it. And it was published, let's see, 1944. This is a book club edition that I have in my hand. There's a little note on it. It says, this book has not been condensed. Its bulk is less because government regulations prohibit use of heavier paper. So wartime rationing, Mm. I thought was really... Yeah, the the back of the book that I'm looking at as Chris holds it up says, buy war bonds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it says this book, like all books, is a symbol of the liberty and the freedom for which we fight. You, as a reader of books, can do your share in the desperate battle to protect those liberties by war bonds. Mm. It's really great to have this copy with that historical artifact in that way. Kay Boyle was also an anti-fascist. She was in Europe, and she saw the rise of Nazism and spoke out against it. And later she was investigated by McCarthy's henchmen, eventually blacklisted, but then cleared. She also protested uh, the Vietnam War. So, you know, her life really spanned the 20th century, and she was involved in so many different movements. K-Boyle, everybody. Check out her poems, her novels. She also wrote some short stories. And Boyd Rue is working on a biography of her now. So that's going to be a couple of years coming, but hopefully this will help spark a resurgence and in interest in her writing. Yeah, and Anne's been spending time in France to study her. At least that's her story. I think she's just there to eat pastries, but <laughs> just kidding. Yeah, but you know what? I listened to that episode with Anne. And, you know, when you go back to older episodes, sometimes, you know, they're a little like, oh, gosh, we were so kind of raw. And I really enjoyed that conversation with her. Those of you who might be new listeners, definitely check that episode out. Yeah. And the great thing about Anne's book was that it wasn't very academic. I really enjoyed reading it. I imagine she's going to do the same thing with this book about Kay Boyle. Yeah, possibly. I know the book Emily is talking about is Meg, Jo, Beth, Amy, The Story of Little Women and Why It Still Matters. And joked saying that as academics, you're trained to write stuff that nobody will ever read. She was trying to break out of that and write something for a popular audience. So we'll see what she does with this. You Mm -hmm. know, I did really enjoy her writing when we read that book. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely keep you all posted when her new book comes out. I have stacks of books at home. But I went to the library myself because the gentleman caller wanted to go get a book at the library, and then I couldn't resist. But I got a book that had been on my radar when it first came out, and I forgot about it. It's called Smile, The Story of a Face by Sarah Rule. This is a memoir. Sarah Rule is a very well-known playwright. And this memoir is about being a playwright, being a daughter, a wife, a mother, a sister, a friend, And also the time period where she gave birth to twins and then developed Bell's palsy. Literally, she was in the hospital with a lactation consultant holding these two babies, being taught how to breastfeed two babies at the same time. Just think about that for a second, people. (laughs) And then the lactation consultant said, your face is doing something weird. And Sarah's response to her was, I'm Irish. We scowl a lot. which actually will play a role further on in the story, which I'll tell you about. But she said, no, really, I think something's going on with your face. Sometimes people confuse someone experiencing Bell's palsy with a stroke. So the doctors came in and determined that she had Bell's palsy and 
it's very common, apparently, after women give birth. I had never heard of that. Most people, like a significant percentage, something like 85% of people recover within three months. She did not. She's been suffering from Bell's palsy for 10 years. She explains Bell's palsy, which is that it's an idiopathic disease, which means the cause is unknown, and it affects nerves in a person's face and scalp, and it arises spontaneously. People suffer from it from, for different reasons. She talks a lot about how women are told to smile all the time. Why aren't you smiling? Smile, smile. Well, she can't. She can literally no longer smile. Half of her face doesn't work. So she talks a lot about that. She talks about the experience of how we relate to each other via smiles and how she has to learn to do it differently. And then she just takes us through her journey of trying to solve this problem. So there's a lot about being your own medical advocate. And that statement she made about being Irish At one point she goes, she had dealt with a very terrible neurologist who was just not a nice person, terrible bedside manner when that first happened. And eventually, I think it was on like year three, she decided to go to a new neurologist and she's giving him the play-by-play literally of like, this is how it happened. And I was with the lactation consultant and I said, ah, I'm Irish. That's why my face. And he goes, you're Irish? You're of Irish descent? And she said, yeah. And he said, I want to test you for celiac disease. Because apparently, a lot of people of Irish descent suffer from celiac disease. Sure enough, blood work, celiac. So it's also just a medical journey, this memoir, that I really appreciated and understanding how frustrating it can be, but also how wonderful it is when you find the people who become part of your posse who can help you heal. Mm -hmm. And eventually she does, she goes through a lot of physical therapy and all sorts of things and does start to heal and has a lot more use of her face, but still not 100%. And she also talks about how when she had her twins, she thought she'd never get back to her playwriting. Like, how will this possibly happen? She already had a three-year-old when she had her twins. She went on bed rest for her twins. I mean, it really impacted her life. But this is someone who's had incredible success as a playwright, and she did get back to it. I ran into your wife, Laura, on the path by our house after just the day I finished it and said, have you ever heard of Sarah Rule? And she was like, oh, gosh, yeah. You oh, know, cool. She won a MacArthur Genius Award in 2006. She's a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist. She's no slouch, yeah. in other words. And I loved the writing. I mean, at one point, it was nighttime and I was page turning. I could not put this book down. So I highly recommend it if you're a memoir reader. It's called Smile, the Story of a Face by Sarah Rule. Oh, fascinating. I, one of my mom's friends had Bell's palsy. And it did go away after mm-hmm. a couple months, I think. But yeah, it came out of nowhere. And she must have been in her 40s when it happened. Hmm. Well, I read a short story by Willa Cather. That is something I'm still doing, the Willa Cather Short Story Project. So we're going back and reading her earlier uncollected short stories that are all on the Willa Cather archive. So you can read them online that way. And the story for this month was The Count of Crow's Nest. I really enjoyed it. I I haven't been talking every month about the stories of hers, but I really like The Count of Crow's Nest. And some of her earlier writing has been called like Jamesian, you know, Henry James influenced. And this one, I haven't found a ton of scholarship on it, but somebody did call it Jamesian. I think it's more like Edgar Allan Poe, who is invoked in this story. 
So it's about a young man in late 1880s, early 1890s in Chicago. It just says it's before the Columbian World's Fair there. And he's just graduated college, trying to figure out what the hell to do with his life. He's living in this shabby boarding house filled with people. Everyone there is kind of like a down-on-their-luck creative who is not making it in their chosen field and probably won't. There's also this one older gentleman who lives there who's very proper and dignified, who we find out is the Count. He is actually a titled person from Europe who is now penniless for the most part. He has a daughter who's living beyond her means. She's an adult, doesn't live with him, and she's like a mediocre singer. So kind of the theme of the story is, you know, people who have that artistic something, that aesthetic, classic appreciation for beauty versus the bougie types who are there for the money and the glitz and the glamour. I enjoyed the story, and I won't give a spoiler, but something comes up, and when those types of things come up, it's usually you can kind of guess what's going to happen in the story. I still found it very entertaining. One of the scenes, they're at a restaurant called Kingsley's, which I thought I would look up. And it was an actual restaurant in Chicago that was started in the 1880s and went until 1906 or something, I think it closed. And it was kind of like the place to go, like where the cultured people went to be seen. And it was considered Chicago's version of Demonico's in New York City. That was fun to find out. So that kind of helped place the time period of the story. And then connecting it to Cather's biography, she actually visited Chicago in 1895 before she graduated college for a week of opera. So I'm curious now, like, did she eat there? Mm. It would be kind of interesting to find out. Or did she just know about the restaurant and that's where all the swank people went? I was going to ask you why she was writing about Chicago. So that makes sense. Yeah. Well, she had some stories set in Chicago and others that are partially set there, like her novel, The Song of the Lark and Lucy Gayhart. And then there's some other short stories, too, that are, are set in Chicago because it was in the late 19th century, the city. It was a world city where people were coming from all over. And it was where so much commerce and invention was happening yeah. Lots of musicians there as well. Well, and reminder, you can follow the Willa Cather Short Story Project on chriswallach.com. Yeah, yeah, come join us. Come read some Cather. So that was The Count of Crow's Nest. I finished The Echoes by Jess Montgomery. This is the fourth oh. book in the Kinship series. I didn't even know you had that. I kept it to myself. You sure did. <laughs> I was going to share with you, and then I thought, I'll read it, and then I'll share it with you. <laughs> You hear that, Jess? <laughs> <laughs> Reminder that the Kinship series, there's three other books, The Widows, The Hollows, The Stills. Jess Montgomery was a guest on episode 93. So if you want to hear her talk about how she decided to start writing this series, you can listen to that. I have read all four now. I have to say, I think about reading Louise Penny, but to step into a series that's so many books in is overwhelming to me. I enjoy being right on track with this one. The Echoes is about Sheriff Lily. We have Sheriff Lily back and reminder, she is based loosely on a woman who was the first female sheriff in Ohio. They actually included a piece that 
Jess Montgomery wrote in February of 2020 about Maude Collins, Ohio's first female sheriff. So that was really cool. And just a reminder that what happened was that Maude Collins' husband was killed in the line of duty, and she was asked to finish out his term as sheriff, which she did, and then ran in her own right and won. So Sheriff Lily is based loosely on Maude Collins. It's historical fiction. This particular book takes place around the July 4th weekend in 1928. There's a celebratory opening of an amusement park that's being dedicated to veterans, and particularly Sheriff Lily and her mother Beulah's son, Lily's brother, who died in the war. The gentleman who's opening the park, which is a neighboring town to Kinship, which is where these books take place, served in the war with the brother. His name is Roger, and that's why he's dedicating the park to him. Well, of course, Lily's there to solve mysteries. So what happens is that it turns out, and this is not a spoiler because the book starts right away with this, with a prologue with a new character named Esme, who is actually Roger's daughter. Hmm. So it turns out when Roger was in France, he had a relationship with a woman who became pregnant and gave birth, passed away during childbirth, and now, for reasons that I will not spoil anymore, is coming to kinship to live with her family. That's a great way to introduce a new character and one that seems so plausible. Yes. I thought everything about this book was believable, so well-researched, so interesting. I mean, imagine like how the family would be turned upside down at getting this news, but also how lovely to have a piece of this person who you lost that's coming to live with you, right? And the memories of that person. There is a very heavy thread of PTSD in this book. And I didn't understand the title. I finished the book and I was like, well, I don't get the echoes. Like the other books, the titles made a little bit more sense to me. And then I got to the end and there was an author's note. What Jess says is that as she developed the novel, she realized that she wanted to explore how past traumas can echo in people's lives for years. Ah, the echoes. Get it. Totally makes sense. Several people in the book suffer from PTSD. And then it also has the themes of female empowerment, friendship, hard scrabble nature of life that people were living in Appalachia during that time. And the choices for women, some women were able to have different choices than others. And the same for the men as well. It takes place in that community where there's mining and lumber yards and things like that. I don't really want to talk about what the mystery becomes because it's all in the unfolding as we know. All right. But again, it's called The Echoes by Jess Montgomery. You can pre-order it now, tell your library about it. And if you're not caught up, you can read the other three while you're waiting for this one to come out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> well, I, I'm continuing on with my reading of picture books, and I wanted to try another one by Margaret Wise Brown. And so I checked out The Runaway Bunny, which I loved. And it's one of those picture books that you could read it multiple different ways because it's this little bunny who wants to run away. Every time the bunny says something, the mother says, well, I will become a tree that you come home to if you're a bird, you know, so there's this pattern to it. 
Really loved it. I love the illustrations as well. Uh, just like Goodnight Moon, they're just wonderful to look at. One of my favorites was a picture of the mom bunny fishing for her little bunny. And on the hook is a little carrot. <laughs> so it's really a cute image. And then the last line, the mom says, eat a carrot. It just cracks me up. I don't know why. Like I read it a couple times and every time it just makes me laugh because it's just the way you interpret it. Like is the mom controlling? Is the mom just tired with all these questions and dealing with the little one when you're trying to do all these other things? Or is she humoring the little bunny? But just the way she says like eat a carrot, it just seems so like deadpan to me. I really (laughs) laugh about that. That's great. I was worried about talking about picture books. I thought, oh, our listener is going to like that. But we've been getting some good comments as you read the one from your friend about Harold and the Purple Crayon. And our friend Katz, who was in Switzerland, was listening to one of the episodes when I was talking about the good egg. And she had just seen a, a cartoon in The New Yorker about an egg. And so she forwarded that to me, which I thought was really cute. And we'll share that on social media. And then a writer named Eric Rosswood We've been connected on Twitter and Goodreads for for quite a while, and he sent me a list of LGBTQ children's books, which is really cool and something I'm going to print and consult as I continue to read on. And I just thought I'd mention Eric has a picture book coming out in May called Strong. He co-wrote that with Rob Kearney. It's coming out from Hachette. And then he also wrote a book, it came out in 2017, The Ultimate Guide for Gay Dads, which is about LGBTQ parenting. So thank you. You know, if you have recommendations for me when it comes to picture books, I'd love to hear them. Yeah. Well, next up, we're going to talk about our read-along. Yeah. So this book, Emily finished, and I have not. I have like 100 pages to go. It was so hard to put it down and come here because... I just got swept up into the story. It's a beautiful story. I love it. And before we get started, I thought maybe I would read just a little piece of a poem. Darcy Little Badger, the author of A Snake Falls to Earth, is Lipen Apache. And I thought, I want to consult our poetry book that was one of our other read-alongs, When the Light of the World Was Subdued, Our Songs Came Through, which was an anthology of Native Nations poetry edited by Joy Harjo. And I looked up to see if there were any Lipin Apache authors in here. And of course, there were. And one of them, her name is Margot Tamez. And she wrote a poem called Voice. I'm not going to read the whole poem because it's long. But I just thought when I read this part, it reminded me so much of some of the themes in A Snake Falls to Earth. So this is A Piece of Voice by Margot Tamez. I come in many forms. Because of me, people think differently. Because of me, people pray differently. Because of me, people sing differently. Because of me, people speak differently. Because of me, people plan differently. Because of me, people live differently. Voice I am. Sacred voice I am. Sacred voice this I am. I value different ways of living. I value different ways of doing. I value different soft goods. I value different hard goods. These are reasons why I gave myself over to the earth surface people, a holy people, a respected people, a compassionate people. When I sound from within them, without falling apart, life ceaselessly expands. These are reasons why I gave myself over to the earth surface people, 
Voice I am. Sacred voice I am. Sacred voice this I am. Forever I am. Tomorrow I am. Today I am. Yesterday I am. In the beginning I am. Voice I am. Sacred voice I am. Sacred voice this I am. Wow, that's a good companion for this book, uh, A Snake Falls to Earth. I agree. So, so a snake falls to earth. Can I just say one thing really quick? Because it's a tie-in to the runaway bunny. <laughs> Please. <laughs> this happens early on. So the story is basically about Ollie, who is a cottonmouth snake, and Nina, who is a human being. And this novel is told in alternating chapters with their stories. And that's all I'll say. We don't want to have too many spoilers in this episode. But there's one point where Ollie... You know, he's a cottonmouth snake, and he had siblings who had all left, and his mom finally tells him, dude, you got to get out. <laughs> she, hand, she hands him a blanket. She's like, time to go. Time to go. <laughs> and it's a blanket she made him with their family pattern on it, and it, so it's very special, but it's like, you have to go. And he's like, well, what am I going to do? You know, where am I going to sleep and blah, blah, blah. It's so unfair. And she says, you're a cottonmouth. Sleep under a bush. <laughs> And that just made me so think of the runaway bunny. Eat a carrot. That mom wisdom. Mom's keeping it real since the beginning of time. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes. So, I mean, I think what we're going to do is talk a little bit about the book. We have our Zoom read-along discussion on Sunday, which will be before this episode actually airs, but we're recording before Sunday. So little out of order from what we usually do is what's happened. Yeah. And I think it's just because it's the beginning of the year. Usually read-alongs will have the group chat and then we record and then we have one episode. But this time you'll get to hear about the book a little bit more on episode 151 as well. Right. If you haven't finished it, you know, or you're just here, you're coming to us with this episode, it's not too late to get your hands on it and join us. Yes. So I think it's important to remember that this is a YA novel. It is considered to be kind of, I would say, sci-fi slash cli-fi. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Cli-fi climate fiction, Mm -hmm. because there is some of that in both worlds of Mm -hmm. this book, really. Yes. Where Earth and the reflecting world are both being affected by climate change. Yes. And there are two different worlds portrayed in the book, and the book is told by multiple characters characters points of view. Yeah, I was reading it, I started it and fine, I I was into the story and reading along. But I don't know, it must have been like the halfway point, like it just bam, it really took off for me. In the reflecting world, the world of animals that can transform into humans, when they transform into their their fake form, which is their humanish looking form, there's usually a little residual of their animal on them. So Ollie, who is a snake, When he transitions into his fake form, his eyebrows are scales. There are two sisters who are coyotes, and they have their fuzzy ears that stay with them. Right. And I do have to say that they have reclaimed twins for me. Twins in literature can be sometimes dicey. Yeah, they were great. Their names are Rain and Rise. Is that right? Rain and... Risk. Risk. Rain and Risk. Yeah. And then Brightest is a Cooper's Hawk. Mm -hmm. Ami is a Toad. Nina is the human. Yeah. There's Brune, who's the alligator who 
is early on in the book and then kind of comes back around a little bit for reasons that are surprising. There's a porcupine named Furious. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's so much that's just beautiful about both storylines, I have to say, that I really appreciate. So Nina, who is the human, she's 16, 15, I think 15. Well, she's all different ages. She ages throughout the course of the book. So in the very first chapter, when she's introduced, she's nine. Right. And where I am right now, I think she's 15 or 16. And so it starts with her grandmother, her I think it's her, her great, 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 great grandmother, right, yeah. who if the date on this picture is correct, she's like 150 years old when she dies. So it starts in the hospital room. And Nina's really into technology. So she doesn't speak her grandmother's language. So she has this interpreter that she uses And I think at first they're talking Spanish and then the great, great, great grandmother reverts to her language of her childhood, which a lot of people don't know anymore. So the translator mishmas it all. Right. So part of Nina's mission is trying to recover the language and understand her great, great, great grandmother's story that she told her because she feels like it's so critical to things that are happening in current day to her grandmother her dad's mom. Yeah. And the love for her grandmother, I think, is one of the beautiful parts of the book, you know, and wanting to understand what's happening in her grandmother's life. And the parents being kind of busy, you know, the parents run a bookstore, which I love. Her mother is gone. Yeah, her mom's off at sea. Right. She works as a translator. Right. And And dad is running a bookstore that they live above. And, you know, he's busy with his life. But he's also doing some business out the back door. Right. Yeah. There are these two guys who come in trench coats and dark glasses to pick up boxes of books once a month. And you wonder what's up with that? Okay. You know, it's a little bit of a mystery. And where grandma lives, she has like this acreage that she lives on with an old stone fence that had been put up around it. And there's a well in there that the great grandmother had fallen into and possibly died because of that. And then there's a stream that plays a role. There's a lot of nature in this book, a lot of nature, which I really appreciated. I mean, the animal characters, of course, but also just the interaction with nature and the force of nature. Yeah. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah. And I am loving it. I'm going to finish it today. As soon as we wrap up here, I'm going to be reading the rest of the afternoon. And I want to read her previous novel now, too, Alazzo. Actually, I was going to say that on our Goodreads thread that we have for A Snake Falls to Earth, I posted a video, I'll also a link to a video, I should say. I'll post the link to this video in the show notes, which is just Darcy Little Badger talking about why she wrote the book. And her mother is standing behind her holding up the book, which is adorable, which she talks about. Alatso, it's actually pronounced Alatsoe. Oh, good to know. Yeah, Alatsoe. Yeah. Okay. yeah, so I was happy to know that. She's really sweet and she's incredibly smart. She's a PhD in ocean science, I believe. So there's a lot of water in this book. But reminder to go to that thread if you want to talk about the book or discuss the book, and that will stay up forever. Yeah, so if on Goodreads. On yeah. Goodreads, yeah. 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 yeah, there's so much nature and then so much family, the nuclear family, well, and intergenerational stuff. And I know at one point there's a hurricane coming, and the dad says to Nina to take care, be careful. 
and she's like, Dad, like I'm 17. <laughs> and he's like, okay, we were just talking about a 70-year-old and worrying about her. So when it's family, you worry. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how old you are, you know, basically, which mm -hmm. I really love and appreciate that sentiment because ageism, it's so easy, I think, in novels to use age as a shorthand for fragileness or I don't want to say incompetence, but inability to care for oneself. And I don't think she does that exactly. No, I can say definitely in the next 100 pages, she doesn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know we're twinkling at each other here with our eyeballs because right. Emily doesn't want to give spoilers. Right. Yeah. And I think we'll have more to talk about on the next episode because we'll also have talked with our Zoom group about it. Right. So you'll be hearing from us again about this book. Yeah, I look forward to that very much. So again, it's A Snake Falls to Earth by Darcy Little Badger, our first read-along of 2022. Yes, and we are focusing on Indigenous writers in 2022. So that's one book a quarter, right? More to come on that. But thank you to everyone who has been participating on the Goodreads thread so far. It's been really interesting. Yes. Yeah. And we should say thank you also to people who ordered the book through our bookshop page. It really does help the book cougars and independent bookstores get a percentage of the sales, as do we. Yeah. Thank so you thank all. you, everybody. So did you go on any Biblio adventures, Chris? Well, you know, I had two that were online. I was a guest on Sean the Book Maniac's booktube channel uh, for his bite-sized book chats. It was the 28th episode that I was on talking about the white ship. Conquest, Anarchy, and the Wrecking of Henry I's Dream. And that was by Charles Spencer, Princess Diana's brother. So he invited me to come on and talk about that book because it was one that was on his radar too. So when he sees a book he's interested in that somebody's talking about on Twitter or social media, he'll ask them to come on and give like, you know, five, 10 minute talk about the book. The other three people on that episode with me is Karen of Run Right Reads who I've been connected with on social media for quite a while. And uh, she talked about Blue by Emily Profet. Not sure if that's the correct pronunciation. It was translated. And then I also want to just say that Karen hosts a readathon each June on Caribbean literature. So it's Caribathon, oh, hashtag, if you look. <laughs> Laura from Newfoundland was there, and she discussed Undersong by Kathleen Winter. Canadian novelist. And Anna Wallace Johnson, who's a booktuber, discussed Snowflake by Louise Neilan. And she's an Irish writer. Have you heard of her? It sounded like a really mm. good, good read. So that was fun. It's always fun to chat with Sean about books and then to see all of these different books and people's takes on them because it introduces me to a lot of books I haven't heard of or maybe ones that I've read in the past. You know, it's not all new books. It's some good backlist stuff too. So that was fun. Nice. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Well, I got to West Hartford and stopped at the Next Chapter bookstore. Oh, good. Yeah. So this is a used bookstore. It's actually run by West Hartford Public Schools which blows me away. This poor manager that was running the store, I chatted her ear off. I wanted all the deets. <laughs> Unfortunately, I missed the kids that work at the store by like 10 minutes. This is an extension program for kids that are post-secondary. What happens is they are of graduation age, so they've gone through a certain amount of high school, but they've held their degree. The, the parents and the children have agreed to have the diploma held until they finish this 
kind of a vocational program where they do different activities in the community where they learn life skills. And these are all kids that are on IEPs, which are individual education plans. They run this bookstore. They go through the books that are donated. They clean them. They organize them. They shelve them. They get the bookstore open every day. They dust. They run the cash register. They communicate with the people there. They also had some fun things like they made bookmarks. So I bought a bookmark for me and Chris. Here you go, Chris. Oh, thank it says, you. let it snow. It's so cute. It's laminated and it has a little ribbon on it. Yeah. Nice. And then they also have a segment of the vocational program where they make doggy treats. So I didn't buy dog treats for Chris's dogs because I know they're on a special diet, but I bought dog treats for my grand dogs. Nice. And they had all sorts of dog treats there. They had a whole corner devoted to that. And you can donate books. You have to get in touch with them via email, which I'll put in the show notes. The donations, physical donations take place at the American School for the Deaf, which is a beautiful campus just down the street from the center of town where this bookstore is. And so I was confused. I was like, so are these deaf kids that are working here? Because I didn't get to meet them. And she said, oh, no, we just use space over there because the American School for the Deaf had some physical space that they could use. So that's where they take the donations so they can sort them and clean them and figure out, you know, when they can get them over to the main bookstore. So I will put that email where you can donate books in the show notes as well. If you live in the area and have some books you want to donate, they take both hardback and paperback. They don't take textbooks and encyclopedias and some of the basics that most used bookstores don't take. Yeah. I was so impressed by the cleanliness of it, the organization of it. It's right in downtown Hartford, West Hartford, I should say. It's beautifully lit, just really pretty. I haven't posted on social media my pictures. I will do that. But then the other fun thing, after I purchased the bookmarks and the dog treats, she hands me this wrapped book. And it's all wrapped in brown paper. It has a beautiful like wax seal on it. It has a little Valentine heart cookie. And she handed it to me and she said, this whole week we're doing random acts of kindness. So the kids wrapped these, you know, they put a little bookmark in it. And I didn't want to open it yet because I thought maybe Chris and I would open it together and video it. So um, it does say on the front, there's a little note card that says suspense thriller. Very cool. I love that. And the little uh, wax seal has a book stamp on it. Yeah, it's really sweet. And I just thought it was so lovely. My only disappointment was I didn't get to meet any of the kids. I will definitely go back and do that. There were people in there shopping. The woman who bought books just after me, I mean, she had a stack of 10 books. So I was happy to see that as well. They had really good selection of books. So again, that's the next chapter bookstore in West Hartford. Very cool. Well, the other online event I attended was a whaling event. This is one Colleen told me about through University of Chicago's Graham School, which is their continuing education arm. This was Whales and Whaling in America with Michael Rossi, who's a professor there. He originated this class and taught it in the past at a different location, but he's going to be offering it coming up soon as a course people could take. One of the things he talked about whaling in America and basically the way he's going to be teaching it is breaking it into three phases really of whaling in America. So from like 1776 to 1860, it's when whales were 
a commodity for exploitation. You know, think of like Moby Dick and whaling was such an important part of our economy and what kept the lights on literally for people in their homes. And then after 1860, they become more of like a scientific curiosity for people wanting to understand them because by the 1860s, there was already overfishing happening and oil was discovered. So there were different sources of creating light and lubricants and things like that. And then more contemporary times, the third phase is really looking at whales as important individuals in and of themselves and what they can teach us in conservation of whales and their environment in our world. So it sounds like it's a really cool class. He doesn't teach the entirety of Moby Dick in this course. He said, you know, we read excerpts. It's kind of tough to put the whole book in with everything he wants to accomplish in this. But it sounds like it's going to be a really cool class. And I'm glad I had the chance to sit in for the initial discussion about it. And there is a link that we'll share in the show notes if you'd like to check it out. Very cool. That reminds me that I still want to go to the Whaling Museum in New Bedford. Oh, yeah. I've so never cool. been. Oh, man, I'll go with you anytime. Okay. Yeah, right I love on. that place. Okay. New Bedford, pre-1860s, it was the most wealthy city in the world per capita. Mm. And New Bedford was like the center of American whaling. That's how big a part of whaling was for the economy not only in America, but in the world. Wow. It's so interesting because I've driven through it a couple times when I go to the Cape. And now it just looks kind of like a town on the water, you know, in New England. But (laughs) it's got so much history. Yeah, for sure. I went on another Biblio adventure. Our local movie theater, the Madison Theater, it's a little art house movie theater, has been closed since the pandemic, since March. And they've got a closed venue grant to help them reopen. And they did. They've done a big renovation with new seats and new bathrooms. And the gentleman caller and I went to see Death on the Nile. Oh, cool. Yeah, which is a new movie that's out based on the Agatha Christie book that published in 1937. I really enjoyed it. I don't think it's getting the best reviews. Kenneth Branagh plays Poirot. I can never say that name. He also did the Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, that wasn't the greatest either, but it's always enjoyable to to see an adaptation, I think, anyway, you know. I mean, it was beautiful to watch. The most exciting thing to me, I have to admit, was that I was back in a movie theater because I love going to the movies. So we had a good time. It was, you know, like a little matinee day out on a cold winter day. That's great. And I know one of the things that those grants do, too, is it helps with the renovation of filtration systems Mm -hmm. for airflow so that there's better airflow for everyone's health. Yep. Yeah, Yeah. that's part of it. Very cool. Did they have like staggered seating or how was that? No, it was actually really funny because the way they're doing it now is you have to purchase seats in advance. So we did. We sat down. When I purchased them, you know, there were like two other seats sold in the entire thing. And then by the time we got there, it started filling up. It wasn't very full, but of course, everyone's sitting right around us. And then the funniest thing happened where a couple sat in their two seats and then another couple came in and said, this, these are our seats. <laughs> they had to, they made them switch, which I was like, oh my gosh, that's so funny. Rule followers. I mean, I'm a very much a rule follower, but I'm not about that for some reason. And so then once everyone was seating and this movie started, Jim and I just got up and moved to seats where we weren't around anybody. Yeah. Because I'm still very nervous about all of it. Yeah. 
Same. But it was fun to try. Yeah, for sure. That's really cool. You know, I bought a copy of that book because I do want to read it before I see the movie. Mm, yeah. yeah. It's not one I've read, I don't think. I've never read one. So it didn't. It made me want to read Agatha Christie. We both talked about that, how fun that would be. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I know like in the world of Agatha Christie fans, some people like her Miss Marple series more than their Perot, which I don't know if I say it correctly either. Um and then I think she had a couple standalones as well. I think it'd be fun to read both of the series in chronological order. Mm-hmm. It'd be fun. Maybe we need to get our mystery man in on this. Yeah. We could do a little read along with him. Oh, that's a great idea. Hey, John, if you're listening. Yes, we'll get back to you. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So do you have any upcoming Johns? Oh, my gosh, I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm looking forward to spring break, which is going to be in early-ish March. So I know I'm going to be going places and doing some stuff locally, but nothing concrete. How about you? Well, I think I'm going to the New Bedford Museum with my buddy Chris. (laughs) (laughs) The New Bedford Whaling Museum, I should say. Um, I am hoping to get to Riverbend Bookshop in Glastonbury. I just read about it. I can't remember why I read about it, but Glastonbury is not far from here. Maybe we can do that together. That sounds fun. That'd I'd be love fun. to go there because it's a bookstore I've heard a lot about too, but I've, I don't think I've been there. And I think it's in a historic building. That's part of the draw to me. Mm. Plus, there are several libraries up in that area that we could visit too. So maybe we'll do a work day slash fun day. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah, I'd enjoy that. And then coming up at the end of March, my son Jacob is going to be on the East Coast for business down in Washington. So I'm going to meet him. Cool. And I want to get to some bookstores down there. I've never been to Politics and Prose. That's high on my radar. If any listeners have ideas about DC bookstores, please send me email, bookcougars at gmail.com. <laughs> Very cool. When is that again? End of March. Perfect. Yeah. So what about upcoming reads? Oh, I have a whole stack of things. Like my eyes are so much bigger than I could ever possibly get read. But um, (laughs) that's okay. We all suffer from that, Chris. It's something else. (laughs) So I ordered a book recently. I haven't gotten it yet. It's a picture book called Such a Library by Jill Ross Nadler. I got a Library Lover's Day discount. And this is coming out from Intergalactic Afrikoman publisher. So we'll see when that arrives. But this book is supposedly an updated version of a classic picture book. It could always be worse by Margot Zamek, which I have a copy here. I picked it up on the way over here to Book Cougar's headquarters. And I look forward to reading that. So I have this. And then I also picked up Bubby and Bart's Matzah Ball Mayhem. Oh my gosh, the cover is so cute. (laughs) Bart is juggling matzo balls. Yeah, in front of a boiling cauldron. I look forward to reading that. That looks like it'd be fun. Now I want to make some matzo ball soup. I have a Jewish theme of picture books for this section. And I thought that might be kind of interesting because to to go by like kind of themes like that with picture book reading, because I was browsing the picture books in the stacks the other day at the library. And I mean, there's, oh my gosh, I mean, it is a new world for me. It is huge. Then getting that list of LGBTQ books too, maybe that'll be another theme I check out coming up as well. Yeah. So, and then the last book, which I also picked up, it came in on hold. It's a a newer book 
The Last Slave Ship, the true story of how Clotilda was found, her descendants, and an extraordinary reckoning by Ben Rains. I'm not sure how soon I'll get to it, but since it's a 14-day hold <laughs> or a 14-day book, I, I need to get hustling. Yes. Well, I have a trip to the library I need to make, too, because I have a book that I put on request. And this is from Tableau Publishing, which is actually an Australian publisher that has put out a series of short books by great women Hmm. writers from around the world. And they just started doing this. And their first book came out in the US on January 15th. And it's called A Dream Life by Claire Massoud, who I love. Claire Massoud wrote a book called The Woman Upstairs that I listened to on audio. And it's the only time that I've been taking a walk and listening to the book. And I screamed out loud, oh my God, because something so shocking happened and all these people turned and looked at me. It was really funny. But (laughs) anyway, I like her writing a lot. And I haven't gotten the book. So I don't know how big it is. But it's definitely, um, you know, the whole point of this series of books they're putting out is that they're short, like novella size, I believe. Mm. And then we also want to we're going to start doing at the end of our upcoming reads segment, books that are out now that we've talked about And we talked about them pre-pub. So we think it's nice to remind you that books are coming out. Yes. And we're going to do our best to be vigilant and accurate and timely. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So one of them is one of the books that's in our giveaway. The Servant Mage by Kate Elliott is out now. And then The Swimmers by Julie Otsuka just came out on 222. And I think that's going to be in one of my top tens of this year. I loved that book so much. That's good to hear. I've seen that cover floating around on social media. I'm aware of it because, you know, you showed it to me, but I'm seeing people chatting about it. Yeah. And if you're interested, Terry Gross just interviewed her on Fresh Air. It was a really good interview. Cool. So, yeah. So coming up. Coming up, we have an author spotlight with Michael P. Branch. His new book is coming out March 1st, the day that this episode drops. It is On the Trail of the Jackalope. How a Legend Captured the World's Imagination and Helped Us Cure Cancer. Mike was our guest on episode 85 when he talked about his last book. I should say Mike's an old friend of mine. He's my former professor from days gone by. He's a professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. He is an award-winning writer and humorist. He's the author of nine books, including Raising Wild, Rants from the Hill, and How to Cuss in Western. And he lives out in the Great Basin Desert with his wife, Erin, and two daughters. And that's out like in the Sierra Nevada mountains out there in Nevada. It's gorgeous. And Mike has a ton of academic writing to his name. But his more recent books are geared more towards popular, wider audience. And he's really trying to write with humor, to write about important things with humor. And the jackalope, man, you know, when we had him on, that first time and we asked him what he's working on next and he said jackalope you know we didn't know what to think reading this book we both love it so much for those of you who don't know it's a jackrabbit with antlers completely made up creature that i probably saw them either in nebraska or northern wisconsin when i was a kid because i knew what they were they're a folklore thing but they're so much more than just a bar joke And the whole curing cancer issue in the subtitle is really a fascinating story. 
It is. If you're a fan of The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, this is definitely a book for you. I mean, it's different, but similar also. Yeah. Yeah. And it has some travel um, writing in it, nature writing for sure. He interviews people. He asks everyone a question about the jackalope. And he talks about the whole issue of the American tradition of the hoax and the tall tale and just how that works, how it's supposed to work. And and I thought that was really a brilliant way, the way he introduced this. And I know we, I think we talk about that in the interview. We do. Yeah. So we yeah. should probably just quit talking and, and say, listen to this interview. Yeah. And we really hope that you support the book by buying it. And also it really does help if you tell your local library. Check it out and enjoy the interview. We're happy to welcome back author Michael P. Branch. Longtime listeners will remember that Mike was our guest on episode 85 way back in 2019. He's also made an appearance on our YouTube channel for our National Poetry Month celebration in 2018. His recitation of How to Like It by Stephen Dobbins is one of our most watched videos. Mike is professor of English and literature and the environment at University of Nevada, Reno, He has over 300 publications to his name and is an award-winning writer of creative nonfiction stories and the American humorous tradition of Benjamin Franklin and Mark Twain. His books include Raising Wild, Rants from the Hill, How to Cuss in Western. And Mike is here today to talk with us about his new book, On the Trail of the Jackalope, How a Legend Captured the World's Imagination and Helped Us Cure Cancer. Welcome, Mike. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me back again. This has got to be your 10,000th episode by now. (laughs) Well, we are so happy to have you back. And the first question we have for listeners, especially because they're not necessarily looking at the book, is what is a jackalope? Well, you know, the the name is a sort of portmanteau between jackrabbit and antelope. But what's kind of interesting about it is usually these things are made not using jackrabbits, but rather cottontails and not using antelope, but rather deer antlers. But basically, the, the beginning of the jackalope was a taxidermy hoax that emerged in the 1930s, where some young kids in rural Wyoming decided to just stick some antlers on a bunny and see if they could convince people that it was real. And so part of the book sort of traces this weird origin story that these kids in rural Wyoming who came up with this nutty idea one day created this thing. And, you know, basically it went viral and it's really iconic now all over the West and really all over the country. So originally it was a taxidermy hoax, but it became such an object of kitsch that, you know, every snow globe and oven mitt and apron and postcard and keychain, you know, people just love jackalopes. Yeah, for sure. I remember seeing them as a kid in, in bars, mainly, you know, the, the bunny head with the antlers. And I remember, you know, is it real? Is it real? And then, you know, people said, yeah, and we're going snipe hunting tonight, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. I mean, it has been used generationally that way to, you know, it, it sort of marks sometimes a line between insiders and outsiders in a community. So you're on the outside as long as you believe in this thing. But as soon as you're hip to what's really going on, then you, you've been sort of welcomed into that community of people. And then you take your turn sort of fooling the next person. So, yeah, it, it's a gag that's been going on for a long time. And it is related to the snipe hunt. Yep. Yeah. And so now your book, The Connection with Cancer, could you talk a little bit about that? Because that is completely fascinating. I mean, this book takes so many different turns, but I think this is something that's really relevant to today. 
Yeah, what got me really interested in this story is that, you know, jackalopes are funny, they're iconic, they're kitschy, they're in songs and movies and art. So they really are in the culture. But behind the story of the jackalope is this amazing story of real horned rabbits in nature. And these things have been studied by naturalists for centuries. And to, to make a long story short, the quote-unquote horns that develop on rabbits are actually a, a growth, a cancerous growth, that's caused by a virus. And it wasn't until the 1930s that, you know, virologists and, and epidemiologists started studying these horned rabbits to try to figure out, you know, where are these weird growths coming from? And that becomes a huge part of the cancer story because it was the study of horned rabbits that first showed that cancer in mammals could be caused by a virus. And that led to all kinds of Nobel Prize winning research that eventually, if you connect enough dots, as I tried to in the book, leads to the development of the human papillomavirus vaccine. So really the safest, most effective anti-cancer vaccine that we have ever devised comes from the study of actual horned rabbits. So the cancer story behind this sort of funny story of this icon of the American West really captivated me because I'm kind of a science nerd and I'm really interested in, you know, how storytelling and science come together. So I really felt like this untold story of, of the cancer research that was behind these real life jackalopes really felt like it was in my wheelhouse. It just seemed fascinating. Yeah. And, and those rabbits, I mean, some of the, the photos that you have in the book are really beautiful some of the artistic renderings but then there's a photograph of a rabbit that has these awful horns all over its face and you just really feel for this creature having to survive with that type of disease yeah it's a terrible thing and you know the the, the quote-unquote horns that grow on these diseased rabbits obviously don't always look perfect like the horns on a jackalope and as you say, Chris, these growths can develop on the head or face and, and can even make it impossible for the animal to eat. So it's really, it is, it's quite sad what happens to them. But, you know, papillomavirus is incredibly common in the natural world. In fact, it's one of the oldest and most widely distributed viruses in the natural world. It's older than we are as a species, actually. Uh, so really, really fascinating. And, you know, uh, HPV, human papillomavirus, also super common. Um, most people who are sexually active will have HPV at some point in their life, but usually won't know it because it's entirely benign. So, you know, we really have something in common with these rabbits and really with every other mammal and many other kinds of animals as well, that these ancient papillomaviruses that we have co-evolved with, you know, they're really part of the natural environment. They're part of who we are as a species, but in some cases, you know, they can become malignant. And, you know, as you say, I have an insert of photographs and jackalope art in the book. And that really is a stunning uh, photograph of, of an animal that was just particularly stricken with the virus. And it really, it's quite, it's quite fascinating, but really grotesque. You're right. Yeah. And it's so interesting because it's really through the curiosity of scientists that they came to look at these animals and say, maybe there's something we need to learn here that can translate to helping to save lives. And the HPV vaccine was invented. And you really, I feel like the chapter that you talk about that is handled so well. And even just, of course, the science behind it and how it was developed, but then the questions that folks have about whether or not to actually have their children 
be vaccinated. And my kids are of a generation, so they're 30 and 27. So the Gardasil vaccine came out when they were young teenagers. And what you talk about, about parents having questions about it because it was sold as a vaccine that will help with sexually transmitted diseases, but it's actually much more involved than that. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you learned as you were researching? Yeah, absolutely. This is really fascinating. And especially at this cultural moment where vaccine hesitancy and resistance is obviously an everyday topic because of COVID. And I think there's a kind of parable, actually, in what we learned from the HPV vaccine, which is the safest, most effective anti-cancer therapy we've we've ever devised. And yet it it is the most commonly resisted of vaccines, at least up until uh, COVID. But as you point out, you know, Emily, the reasons are a little bit different. Um, Basically, it went down like this. This is this medical history is really fascinating to me. It was recommended that the HPV vaccine Um, to make it most effective should be given to kids ideally when they're about 11 or 12. But because the cancers that are caused by HPV, which include cervical cancer, um, are sexually transmitted, basically what happened was parents didn't really understand how this worked. Many didn't. And they said, hey, my kid's 11. I'm not going to give them a vaccine to protect them against a sexually transmitted disease. They're, They're not sexually active. They don't need this. But the point is that The vaccine is most effective if it's administered before people become sexually active, not because they are. So there was this kind of weird parental resistance to the idea that, ah, you know, my my kid's not going to have sex. And as a result, we've left millions of people vulnerable to these cancers. I mean, 20 years and more now after the approval of HPV vaccine, our vaccination coverage rate for adolescents in this country is just a little bit over 50%. And, you know, there are still a half million people a year dying of cervical cancer in the world. And uh, it's really, it's a sad story. And I, you know, I don't mean to be flip about this, but, you know, my agent said, well, what do you want this book to accomplish? And I said, well, first, I want it to be really entertaining. And second, I want it to save lives. So it's kind of a funny combination of ambitions as a writer, but you know, I really hope that the HPV story will reach some people who maybe don't understand how powerful and how important that vaccine is and uh, just how necessary it is as a public health issue to make sure that our kids are protected. Yeah. Unfortunately, I didn't mark it in the book, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but there was a quote that was so wonderful about vaccinations that I think is so apropos, as you're saying, to where we are in this moment about really what the cure is. Do you remember that quote? Yeah, I mean, and where this came from actually was when we decided to use, you know, this language of helped us cure cancer in the subtitle of the book, I felt really nervous about that, right? That claim, curing cancer is the holy grail of medical research. That claim feels too, too broad, too ambitious. And then one day I was at my doctor and I was just sort of chatting with him about this. Like, how do you counsel different patients about HPV HPV vaccine? How do you deal with it when they're resistant for one reason or another? And I just sort of casually said, um, you know, hey, I, I, I think the HPV vaccine is the closest we've ever come to curing cancer. And it was a really interesting moment. This is my own personal family doctor where he stopped and got really serious. And he said, this is a cure for cancer. And he elaborated, I think this is the quote you have in mind, and said, you know, even within the medical community, we're indoctrinated to the idea that 
a cure fixes something that's broken. Mm -hmm. And he said, we need to change that paradigm because the ultimate cure is the thing that can prevent disease in the first place. And so he, you know, he really was serious about this idea that you know, the HPV vaccine is a cure for cancer, for some kinds of cancer, right? But those include a half dozen kinds of cancer, including oral cancers, um, and most importantly, cervical cancer, which you know, has been a tremendous killer of people for centuries. And it's just an amazing breakthrough that it's now almost entirely preventable. You know, all, about 98% of cervical cancers have high-risk HPV DNA in them. And in fact, about three quarters of cervical cancers are caused by just two strains of HPV, both of which are protected against by the vaccine. So, you know, I, I don't want the book to be a vaccine polemic. I think we're all familiar with how embattled that space is yeah. in the culture. But I do hope that the story of real life jackalopes and all the fun that I have telling it, you know, can also lead people to a new awareness about the fact that uh, we can we can protect ourselves from these cancers with a simple and safe vaccine. Now you do talk about fun. We've started out on the on the hard stuff here, <laughs> very important, but this book is really fun. So can you talk about how you set out to tell your story? Yeah, I mean, uh, Chris knows me well enough to know this, but you know, the, the guy who tells this story, my narrator, is an obsessed person who just gets really, really deeply into things. So I sort of joke that I spent all of COVID you know, down in my horned rabbit hole. But I just, you know, I just chased horned rabbits everywhere I could. And some of that involved field work before COVID. Um, one of the uh, really fun chapters in the book is the very first chapter where I make this pilgrimage to this little town in Wyoming, uh, where the jackalope mount was invented in the 1930s. And this town's whole identity, it's Douglas, Wyoming, and they call themselves the home of the jackalope. And, you know, all their teams, their bands, their restaurants, everything's named after Jackalope. So I go there and I just hang out in this town and interview these people all the way up to the mayor of the, of the town about what Jackalopes mean to them. How is that entwined with their identity? So that kind of field work and those interviews were really, really fun. But because I sort of trace the Jackalope myth to, to every possible um, direction I can, I end up interviewing cryptozoologists and postcard collectors and people who've created websites where you can write in with your jackalope sighting narratives. <laughs> and, you know, it was just a trip to meet all these, all these cool, funny, crazy uh, people. And then also just to really discover that the jackalope has just permeated the culture. And the one question that I ask everybody I interview at the end of the interview is, why do you think people love jackalopes? And over the tra narrative trajectory of the full book, you get this incredible range of answers to that question. Like everybody loves jackalopes, but they all sort of have a little bit of a different reason why. Um, so, so I think a lot of the, what was fun about the book for me was not only being obsessively interested in tracing the jackalope everywhere I could, but also talking to all these cool, weird people whose lives intersect with the jackalope somehow. So for example, I, went and hung out in the taxidermy studio of the son of the man who invented the jackalope. Well, I'm not a hunter. I don't know anything about taxidermy. So I just immersed myself in this weird other world. And that's what's cool about being a writer, I think, is this opportunity to get outside your comfort zone and just become a temporary member of these communities that are so alien and so interesting to you. 
Well, speaking of the taxidermy, can you talk a little bit about that experience, trying your own, your hand at it yourself? <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was really funny. I was almost done with the first draft of the manuscript when I realized, like, I have left the most important stone unturned. I've, I've talked to people about jackalopes, not only around the country, but around the world, because there are analogs to the jackalope in other cultures. So horned rabbits are important in the folklore and mythology of a number of indigenous cultures, some cultures in Asia, even even Buddha himself uses horned rabbits as a teaching tool. Um, but especially in Europe, uh, there are lots of analogs uh, to, uh, to the jackalope, other kinds of horned rabbits. Um, so I had been interacting with these other kind of um, taxidermy artifacts in other cultures, and then I realized, oh, I need to have this experience myself. I need to make a jackalope, right? So I finally found a, a place that would help me to do this. And interestingly enough, and this tells you something about the range of appeal of jackalopes, right, is the book starts with me in rural Wyoming talking to, you know, taxidermists and hunters. And it ends with me in the Mission District of San Francisco with these hipsters going to this very expensive, expensive jackalope-making workshop. And it was really important that I did that because – I found the process of, of crafting a jackalope much more challenging than I had expected. I was terrible at it, which was a source of endless amusement to my, my fellow hipsters. But it was also super gross. And, of course, I should have expected this, right? Uh, but it was an interesting process because I, I learned a lot about physiology and anatomy and about craft and about the art of taxidermy. But I also, you know, it raised some ethical questions for me about um, in the same way you might ask about what you eat or what you wear. Well, okay, you know, there's plenty of jackalope kitsch out there that's perfectly harmless. But a jackalope mount itself, you know, requires a rabbit. And so I was kind of asking myself these questions like, well, if you use a rabbit to create food, what are the ethics of that choice? If you use a rabbit to create slippers, what are the ethics of that choice? But if you take the life of a rabbit to create this thing that brings joy and is funny, but also costs a life, what are the implications there? So as I work through that, I don't make an argument. I don't have a position on it, but I try to be really honest about my own mixed feelings about that experience. Yeah, there's a little a little bit of an appearance from PETA, right, as you're, at your, as you're working through creating this jackalope. Yeah, that was a wild moment. So we were in the back of this... Um, this store in the workshop space making our jackalopes. And at one moment, a PETA activist stepped into the store with a sign and kind of chanted for a minute or two, totally peacefully, and then left the store. And I never found out whether that person's objection was to the jackalope making specifically or to that store, which had lots of other taxidermy items, which I think there are plenty of people who would find taxidermy objectionable. That was actually part of what interested me in the beginning in this project was the way in which a jackalope mount appears to be a way of satirizing a hunting trophy mount, right? It's like making fun of, oh, you know, I'm a masculine dude and I killed an animal and I'm going to put it on the wall and prove something about myself. This just seemed to be sort of tongue in cheek. Like, let's take that whole tradition of hunting trophies and just make fun of it by putting this horned rabbit up. And I like the way that Jackalope satirizes the trophy taxidermy, which I do object to ethically. 
uh, that was a very interesting moment for me. And I write in the book that I appreciated that that person showed up because it really caused me to stop and think in a very different way about something that I had in effect been passionate about and studying for years. And that was kind of a dimension of the whole jackalope phenomenon that I, I hadn't really grappled with. So, you know, I felt good about that. I, in the end, I wasn't sure um, how I felt about jackalope making in terms of the life that it costs. But I really appreciated that somebody had enough conviction to show up and help me to think about it. Yeah. One of the questions I had in your studies and research, have you come across any people who were against the jackalope because it's, you know, like an abomination unto the Lord to combine two animals in that way? You know, I've heard of people, you know, railing against pig hearts and humans and, and things like that. Yeah, that is such a cool question. You know, I didn't encounter that directly, but I will say you're absolutely right that hybridity, right, which is a form of diversity, and hybridity occurs throughout the natural world and and always in human culture, right? The coolest music, the coolest film, the coolest literature, it's usually combining different things in a powerful new way. And I think that kind of diversity and hybridity is really fascinating to us. But then there's also the whole narrative of, you know, hybridity in animal cultures and why we're so interested in that. So, you know, why do we love unicorns? And right, there's many other examples. So yeah, I didn't really encounter anybody who found it morally objectionable, but there is a long tradition objecting to these um, unholy composites, you know, this, this putting together of different things. And it's very interesting from a kind of, if you think about it from a sort of environmental ethics perspective, I think that objection, you know, we do associate it with kind of fundamentalist religious ideologies, but it also, I think, comes from like a fear of impurity somehow that, you know, whatever we are as human beings, we need to be superior to the rest of the animal kingdom and we need to not interact with it in any way. We need to preserve this sense of our species as as somehow superior to other animals. I actually find the, the, these sort of hybrid moments super interesting. And indigenous cultures are, of course, full of narrative storytelling, you know, where people marry bears and people have families that have cross-species relationships. And those typically are a sign not of weakness, but of strength, right? It shows that there's a communication of cross-species barriers um, and that that is a form of diversity and hybridity and strength. And anybody who has a cat or dog and has a real relationship with them knows what I'm talking about. The cross-species relationships are meaningful. So, no, I didn't encounter that directly, Chris, but, but the jackalope is part of that long tradition of, you know, it's not right to put these two different things together. Um, but I did interview a lot of people who embraced the jackalope for that reason. One musician I interviewed said, yeah, to me, the jackalope is sort of an example of what's great about American culture. You bring different stuff together, you create something weird and beautiful. And it's precisely in that hybridity and diversity that we see the most creative stuff. So, um, yeah, but that's a great question. You know, on that note, so talking about American traditions, I have to say I love your storytelling the tall tale that you tell. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't want to give any spoilers because I want listeners to be able to read it on their own because you really had me going. Um, <laughs> and so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this, the tradition of humor writing in American culture. And, you know, I mentioned in the introduction that I, I think you come from that tradition of Benjamin Franklin and Mark Twain, who you discuss in the book a little bit. And I'm just wondering if you can give 
the listeners a taste of this strain of humor writing. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I'm, I am a humor writer, and you know, my last three books have all really been um, strongly humor texts as well. I'm really interested in how humor works, how it builds communities, how we use it to mediate our relationships with nature. And definitely the exaggeration of humor, especially when it's used to pull the wool over somebody else's eyes, is really old in the American tradition. So in the book, I basically say, like, Ben Franklin writes this fantastic letter where he describes whales, you know, pursuing herring up rivers and then leaping up waterfalls. And, you know, he did this because he just wanted to kind of um, mess with his European readers who didn't understand much about the American environment. But there's a long tradition. I mean, you mentioned Franklin and Twain, who are heroes to me, but really a long tradition of using humor to get at important ideas, too. So in that tall tale chapter, you know, what I'm interested in is, okay, a jackalope is a thing, right? I mean, it's an artifact. You can put it on the wall of a pool hall or a ball, it's a bar, it's a conversation piece. But what keeps the jackalope alive are the stories about it. And so I had so much fun looking into, you know, how can we place the jackalope in this tradition of the American tall tale? And, you know, there's all this great stuff like, well, jackalopes are rare because they only mate during lightning storms. And, you know, the saber-toothed jackalope, which is now extinct, used to attack wagon trains. And jackalope milk is a powerful aphrodisiac, but it's really hard to get because even though doe jackalopes sleep with their belly up, they're super mean. And so it's too dangerous to try to do it. Um, and then one of my favorites, and this, this one is retold all the time, is um, you know, that jackalopes have this amazing power of uh, throwing their voice. They're essentially the only ventriloquists in the, in the animal world. And so they like to sing along with people when they're singing at the campfire. And, and then people get way down into this, right? So it'll be like, well, anybody who tells you that the jackalope sings the bass part when they harmonize with you doesn't know anything about jackalopes. Everybody knows it's just the treble part. So, you know, you have these layers and layers and layers and then there are all the folk tales, the kind of mythic um, tall tales about jackalopes that, that circulate in popular culture. And then there are all the people who make that their own and spin it off and do their own thing with it. You know, there's one guy who's, whose whole shtick is that jackalopes have extrasensory perception. And there's another guy whose whole shtick is that, you know, the CIA is keeping jackalope corpses at Area 51. And, you know, so once people embrace the idea of, Oh, there's there's no end to the stories we can tell about this thing because nobody makes the rules. Nobody adjudicates these narratives. It's it's whatever you can dream up and especially whatever you can dream up and make somebody else believe for a few minutes. Um, so, yeah, I really I love the way the jackalope speaks to this tradition of American humor because it isn't just an artifact. When you put that thing on the wall, what you've done is create the conditions for lots of stories to be told. And so I love that relationship between the artifact and the narratives, between the hoax mount and the folklore. And it's very much in the American grain um, to, to have things that inspire these kinds of humorous folk stories and then to just push them as far as you can to see what people will believe. Yeah, you had me going too when I was reading your tall tale. <laughs> the other thing you talk about is, is so many people who collect all manner of jackalope kitsch, as you say, or some people might say tchotchkes. So I, I'm dying mm -hmm. to know what your prized jackalope possession is. 
Oh, listen, my family has had to have several <laughs> interventions with me. Um, yeah, the collector mentality is very addictive. And before I answer the question directly, I'll tell you my favorite encounter with a collector, which I talk about in the book, is the oldest artifact of Jackalope Kitsch, other than the mount itself, is the postcard. And Jackalope postcards have been around since the 1940s. And they're still extremely popular, even in an era when very few of us send, send postcards. And uh, they were used, again, as a hoax. Like people would travel out west, they'd send Jackalope postcards back to their family and friends and say, you'll never believe what I saw out here in Nevada, Colorado, Wyoming, Arizona, Montana, right? Um, so I struck up a friendship with the guy who has the world's largest Jackalope postcard collection. And I thought, okay, you know, he's going to be weird and cool and this will be interesting. And he was. But he's also obsessive. And I started to see my own obsession with tracking jackalopes into every corner of popular culture mirrored in this guy who, after we built a friendship, he started you know, confessing things to me like, well, I don't tell my wife, but I kind of plan our family vacations to go to places where I might be able to get one more card. This guy has hundreds and hundreds of jackalope cards dating to the 1940s. And he knows of another 20 or so that are out there that he just hasn't been able to get. And it's, it's killing him, you know? And so one day he said, you know, this, this is eating me alive. I just can't take it. And I said, well, do you think you'll stop? And he said, no, no, I got to keep going. And I'm going to donate my whole collection to the Smithsonian. So people love jackalope junk and our house is full of it. I don't know. You can probably, I don't, don't, don't go anywhere without. He just um, without stood up jackalope. listeners and he's wearing a jackalope university <laughs> shirt. <laughs> well, you know, they say dress for the job you want to have, right? So, yeah, I, you know, I think one of my favorite um, pieces of jackalope kitsch is um, there's a really interesting kind of old hippie cartoonist who lives up here in the Sierra Nevada, who in the 1970s created a jackalope character called Junior Jackalope, who's a lot like Bugs Bunny. Like he's a kind of a countercultural a really funny, really wily, witty character and did a series of comic books uh, about this Junior Jackalope character. And I have some of those comic books and I, I'm not a huge comic book fan, but I really loved the way R.L. Crabb, this cartoonist from the Sierra Nevada, had created a Jackalope who was capable of getting the best of everybody, right? He was the, he was the craftiest one, the wiliest one, really uh, sometimes profane, countercultural, He's a little bit like um, sort of coyote in, in an indigenous culture that that he was, um, you know, really funny, but also fundamentally sort of anti-authoritarian and wild. And I really love that idea of, you know, jackalopes are on keychains and beer bottles and, you know, everything else in the world at this point. But I love the idea of the jackalope as this kind of smart aleck, wily um, cartoon character, in effect. And I've really enjoyed that work, which is hard to get now, but part of my Jackalopeana, you know, the collection of Jackalope stuff that has no bottom. I mean, there's no end to this. And anybody who's ever been to Wall Drug in South Dakota, which is probably the greatest Jackalope, you know, um, kitsch emporium in the world, uh, it's just, it's overwhelmingly fun. And um, it, I, I really love the way the jackalope has just permeated popular culture. And of course, now that people know I'm working on this, I get emails and texts all the time from people I don't know saying, hey, did you know this basketball team in this town is named after the jackalopes? Hey, did you know there's this 
strain of weed that's named after jackalopes. I mean, it's everything, um, including, by the way, um, you know, we're all we're all angry at Spotify right now for good reasons. But I will mention that before we got angry at Spotify, I built a publicly available Spotify playlist called On the Trail of the Jackalope, the same title as the book. It's got almost 100 jackalope songs on it. So, you know, artists, musicians, filmmakers, sculptors, writers, uh, as well as people who are embracing this sort of empire of jackalope crap that we get so much pleasure from. Um, you know, this thing is everywhere now. And it all started with a couple of kids in rural Wyoming who thought up a joke. Right. They had a great sense of humor, those two. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, we love the book, Mike, and we can't wait for it to hit the streets. And we hope you'll keep in touch with us about all the cool stuff people will be sending you or sending you pictures of once the book is out there and more people realize that there's uh, this passion for jackalope paraphernalia. Yeah. Um, that, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who might think that they're alone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love the idea of, you know, jackalope obsessed people like cowering in their homes thinking they're the only one. Yeah, you're not the only one. And in fact, you're not even the only one in the States. It's been really fun to interview people around the world who have their own version of the jackalope and who think ours is sort of a derivative knockoff. You know, the Bavarians have their Volpertinger and, oh, this jackalope, this is just a Johnny come lately, you Americans. You have no no sense of history. Um, but it's been so wonderful to talk with you guys, and I'm going to be doing a lot of um, events around the West, around the book, and so people can go to my website, michaelbranchwriter.com, and um, always have a big list of the events that I'm doing around the book. But it's just been so fun to talk with you again, and thanks for keeping Book Cougars going all these years. Thanks. We have one question before we let you go. Sure. Why do you think people love jackalopes? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I I wrote a whole book trying to answer that question. <laughs> for me per- personally, for me personally, I would answer it this way. I would say that we need to believe that things that seem impossible might be possible. And one of the things I really love about the jackalope is until you get hip to the trick, it is something that strikes you as possible. But it also tickles the part of your brain that says, but it can't be possible. So I really love that idea that human beings, I mean, this is passion for cryptozoology too, right? Human beings love to navigate in that liminal zone between the real and the imaginary. And for me, the jackalope falls right there. And the fact that there are real horned rabbits in nature that may have been connected to this in some way, uh, I really love because people who don't know about this will often say to me, you know, is the jackalope real or is it just a hoax? And I always say yes. <laughs> so it's, it's that yes that is the answer to, to your yeah. question. For me, the way it can operate in the real world and the imaginary world simultaneously, I think we all need a little more of that. Yeah, for sure. sure. Yeah. All right. I, I loved uh, how every time it came, it was like, where's Waldo to me? Like, when's he going to ask the question? <laughs> what are they going to say? <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. This has just been a hoot and uh, best part of my day. And I really do not only appreciate you guys making me welcome, but as you know, you know, getting the word out about books is a hard thing to do and it's getting harder all the time. So the work of people like you guys is crucial. I mean, I'm always telling people that 
folks have this idea that writers go off and they're by themselves and it's a solitary endeavor. But without people like you, I, I can't do this stuff. So I really, really appreciate what you're doing for me and for so many other writers, too. So thank you for that. Thanks. Oh, thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes, which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keo Sound Design.